hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. This episode features Craig Heap, the former Olympic gymnast who made history by captaining the English men's team to their first ever Commonwealth Games gold medal. We talk about everything from growing up on a dairy farm in rural Lancashire and being a kid in a not-so-cool sport, to the resilience that saw him overcome over 20 operations during his sporting career. Craig shares his approach to microdosing achievement, to winning a sport he was once told he would never succeed in, and his mindset of running his own race to achieve ultimate success in both sport and business. Well, welcome, Craig, and thank you for joining us. We're so excited for this conversation. Let's start with your upbringing in rural Lancashire. How did you go from that to an Olympic gymnast? Uh, Well, it's quite a bizarre tale, really, because growing up, I knew exactly what I wanted to be, and that was a dairy farmer, mainly because I think you've got two types of people. You've got academics or you've got practical people. And I definitely see myself as practical. I'm certainly not academic. So I love the practical side of farming, mainly, you know, the fact that I grew up and I had a motorbike and I got to ride around the fields on a motorbike after I had a BMX and I got, the toys just get bigger and I got to drive tractors. So that was my game plan up until I left school, really. But one day I remember mum saying, your sister was doing gymnastics at the leisure centre, you know, and... Uh, we need to do something for your hyperactivity or challenging behaviour, as it probably was on my school reports. And she's like, you know, you're going to come and watch your sister at the gym. I'm like, absolutely no chance. Gymnastics, that's just for girls type of thing. Anyhow, I got forced down to the gym. And I remember you weren't allowed in the hall where the kids were doing gymnastics. And the coach was like, you're not coming in here. I thought, oh, you're a bit miserable. But we got sort of like ferried onto the balcony up there with the other brothers and sisters, mums and dads. And I remember just putting my hands on the top of this wall and just sort of edging myself up to look over. And I was like, wow, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. The challenge of people doing flips and swinging around bars and jumping over boxes. So I think that sort of struck something, the practical side in me. But obviously there was no way I was going to join the class because it was full of girls and I certainly wasn't going to wear a leotard as well (laughs) so believe it or not my gymnastic career started at home whether it's in the barn jumping over bales of straw as you know now everybody's got a trampoline in the back garden but uh, certainly when I was growing up in the 80s nobody had trampolines so the nearest I had to a trampoline was my parents' bed and I I used to spend hours jumping up and down on my parents' bed and my mum would go, get off my bed, you know, and I'd be like, (laughs) I'm not on your bed and I'd come down and my face would be bright red, like sweaty, going, I've not been doing anything, mum. And then one day I broke the bed and my mum was absolutely living. There's no hiding that. <laughs> no. But I sort of put the duvet over the top. And it was only <laughs> later on when my mum and dad tried to get into bed and they sort of fell through it that I was rumbled. And that was it. You're going down to the gym whether you like it or not. And I think that was the starting point, really. So you made history at the 1998 Commonwealth Games, captaining the English men's team and winning the first ever Commonwealth gold medal. What do you think was different? Because you did that then and then you went on to do it again at the 2002 Manchester Commonwealth Games. What was different, do you think, about the behaviours of that team 
that hadn't been done before? Well, I think probably leading up to that event, because teams are made of individuals that do certain things, you know, it's like any high-performing team. And in gymnastics, the apparatus is the skill set that you need. So you have various people working, various pieces of apparatus, you know, and collectively you generate a team score. And I remember going into that competition, and again, we were the underdogs. I think Australia were by far the favourite, then Team Canada, then Team England. And I really struggled, actually, personally, with the travel and jet lag, I really couldn't settle. I was going to training, I was really tired, I was struggling to get my routines together. And it, it was just a case of, you know, as captain of the team, I said, look, lads, all we have to do is go in and give it our best shot. We've everything to gain, really. But certainly when you're the underdogs, nobody expects you to do well. And in gymnastics, it, it used to be out of 10. And if you took a step, that'd be point one. And we beat the Australians by less than point one. Wow. So that's six apparatus, three routines, that's 18 routines, and we won by less than point one. And we were literally waiting for the last person's score to come in to realise, you know, that we'd done it. The women's team had made history in, in the games before, but that was the first time the men's team had done it. And I remember because I, I was reserved for the 94 Olympics. And I was really annoyed I wasn't in the team because one of the guys went with a hernia and it ruptured during the competition and they knew he had it. And I was so angry the fact that I wasn't there, part of the team. And again, I was reserved for the 96 Olympics before that. And I think it's those sort of setbacks, what you'll probably hear from everybody that sits in this seat, that actually are really significant to the success that follows. And the same also within my businesses. So a lot of people fear failure. And at that time in 94, I was like, you know, this is the worst day of my life. And then in 96 for the Olympics, I was like, you know, is this ever going to be my day? But only through experience, you got actually, this is part of the journey. And that's really significant. And I think certainly when we went, I went to 2000 to the Olympics and then 2002 come off games. Where I nearly retired, I was going to retire after the Olympic Games. And it was only by chance I overheard my teammates talking about the come-off games coming up and I'd be too old, you know. And to be honest, if I hadn't have heard that statement, I probably would have retired after the Olympics. But I think there's something inside me, and, and again, probably lots of people that you speak to, is that determination when people say you can't do something that you want to prove them wrong. So I carried on for two more years into Manchester. And slightly different preparation in Manchester. We all trained at the National Centre. And the Canadian team flew into our National Centre to train alongside us. And again, they were the better team. And they should have won. And the same thing I said to the, the guys in the team, look, we can't do anything about the opposition. We can only concentrate on our own performance. And I do think the home advantage really played a part in Manchester because the support was absolutely phenomenal. To the point of my legs were like jelly when I went up onto the podium. So, you know, who knows what the other teams were feeling. And we, we won by over half a mark. It was a lot more significant victory than we had in 98. And I just think, you know, it's that mindset of going, well, for me, it was my last ever competition. And I wanted to go out knowing I'd done my best
personally. And sometimes you know that you can perform better, but if you put your best in on that day and the lead up and sort of like leave no stone unturned, it's how you deal with it yourself. And I know loads of people, and I think this is why a lot of athletes struggle when they retire, is because they haven't performed for their own success. And I think it's really individual. You know, you could have people becoming the Olympic champion and suffering from depression because they wanted to exceed that or people getting a silver or a bronze medal or whatever. And I think success is so individual and it's you that has to digest that of a night when you put your head on the pillow. Have I done everything I could have done regardless of the result? It's interesting, isn't it? Because Craig's very high in achievement you're motivated by achieving goals that's what your map tells us and it's interesting when you talk about that piece around hearing someone say you can't is the thing that spurs you on for you to think you can and we talk about that sometimes when people say things you've got one of two choices it can either advance you forward to do something against all odds or to want to prove other people wrong or sometimes people take that and it can be like almost a limiting belief and they keep a hold of it and it stops them from moving forward. It's really interesting that that spurred you forward, even to the point of not going into retirement and moving forward. Yeah. I think with that, what's so interesting is your point around different people. I mean, we've had quite a lot of athletes on this podcast. We have high-performance business owners. But the really interesting thing is that everybody's motivations are different. And where we see people fall down is when coaches fail to acknowledge that with the people that they're coaching. And often, I think you're absolutely right, people end up doing something and achieving something maybe based on what their coach tells them it should feel like or what somebody around them positions it as versus looking inwards and saying, but what would success feel like to me? Like you said, when you put your head on that pillow at night, what would achievement feel like to me? And I think that's a really interesting piece that not enough people do that introspection to say, what does that success feel like? So often when they get it, it doesn't feel they like don't they know what it, it would. They don't know what it yeah. is. And I think that stop, this started from a really early age as well. So not just then. I remember when I was about probably 14, 15, getting into the national team. And we, we trained in a sports centre in Burnley. We didn't have any of the foam pits and stuff like that. But my coach was somebody that always wanted to get more knowledge. So he would travel to, I remember he went to Romania where the best gymnastics were taking place in the world. And he'd go and sit in the gyms and make notes. And he'd come back and we'd try stuff. We built a foam pit in a squash court and they're tiny. But everybody else were doing it. So you can either get bogged down with the problems or you can become a solution maker. You know, and I think people that are successful are really good at coming up with solutions to problems. And I read in a book once about getting a mentor. Don't get a mentor, get a tormentor. And I thought that was really good, but it doesn't work for everybody. And these are where good coaches come in. So I coach for a little while. And I knew if I said to some child, you'll never do that, it would break them. But I know if I said to another child, you'll never do that, who was like me, they'd go, I'll prove you wrong. And, and this is where, as you say, it's not a, a one rule 
fits all people. And good coaches really get to know the people that they're working with. Just like managing staff, which I've had to learn to do in the last couple of years, not everybody's motivated by the same things. And I think going back to when I was 15 and, you know, we had to go to the National Centre, we had two days of physical testing. One was all about what tricks and skills you could do. The other was about physical capability, how fast you could run 20 metres, climb a rope and stuff like that. And I remember the national coach saying to me, he said, you're not very strong, you're not very flexible, you've not got much talent, and gymnastics is probably not for you. Wow, wow. brutal. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is a motivational guy. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's how it was. Back then, people were very blunt. Mm-hmm. But then that sort of went, right, I'll prove you wrong. But it could have quite easily gone the other way. And when I look back, he was right. I wasn't very flexible. I wasn't very strong. Talent, well, if if you read Matthew Said in Black Box Thinking and Bounce, and he talks about the myth of talent, I'm not sure about that. But can we improve flexibility? Absolutely. So back then I used to train about three times a week after school. On the days I wasn't training, I used to sit in splits watching TV. Back then it was Neighbours and all that sort of stuff. Home and away. Home and away. And I was crying. I don't know if it was the rubbish I was watching on the TV or the pain from getting down in splits. But I did it every day. And then I said to my coach from Burnley, I said, have you got some exercise I can make a bit stronger? He said, oh, yes. So he'd give me like, you know, we can start off doing press-ups. And I'd put my feet on the settee and I'd do press-ups. And, you know, after 12 months, I could do press-ups in handstand and stuff like that. But that's got to come from inside. You know, nobody told me to do that. And later on, when I I failed to get to the Olympics in 96, I realised you had to be good at all six pieces of apparatus to go to the Olympics back in 2000. And I was pretty good at five, but my Achilles heel was the pommel horse. And I absolutely hated it. The handles are wooden, and if you're doing the double leg circles and you crack your shin on the handle, it absolutely kills and it takes the skin off and you're like lying on the floor hopping around you know and generally all your mates are laughing at you now because they find it highly amusing but it's definitely not funny when you do it yourself but it was a weak piece of apparatus and I knew when I'd gone home and I was having a week to myself crying and feeling sorry for myself that unless I took action about that piece of apparatus I would never go to the Olympics in 2000 so when I went back to training I used to go back to that piece of apparatus every day. And people, I remember the lads used to laugh at me because they used to say, Craig, you'll never be any good on the pommels. An extra session won't make any difference. And you're right. But if you apply marginal gains and you go to that piece of apparatus every single day, Mm -hmm. and we used to do six days a week, 50 weeks a year for four years, that adds up. So when I went to the Olympics, and we only had one place in Australia, it was definitely down to that action. No coach told me to do that. Coaches don't care who goes to the Olympic Games because they're going anyhow. They've got a nice holiday. But I care whether I go or not. And in the Olympic Games, out of the six pieces of apparatus, the pommel horse was my third highest scoring piece of apparatus. So my weakest link, I'd worked on it. But I know some people go... In business, if you're not good at that, pay somebody else to do it. I was just about to say that, But it's quite difficult, isn't it? 
Well, in your scenario, you can't pay someone else to do it. No. And and also, with the behavioural stuff that we do, Craig, we talk about appreciating where your strengths are, but also understanding where your blind spots are or your Achilles heel, as you described it. And for us, it's about if you're aware of your Achilles heel in business, often you don't necessarily have to be brilliant at the thing you're not good at. All six things. All, yeah. all things. But you do need to be aware of it and then learn how to flex it and be better at it when you need to. You might then bring someone else in, for example, to do the detail or the process if you're not that way inclined. But you do have to appreciate and that is a blind spot for you. And you have to also appreciate that someone else's strength you might find difficult to manage or work with. So... I think there's a lesson there around like not necessarily in a business context saying you have to become really good at something. But guess what? If you're a business owner and finance isn't your thing, you do need to gain the basics. You do need to go away and look at how you can improve in those areas so that you can run the business more effectively. You can't just bring someone else in to do something for you every time. And I mean, it's really inspirational to hear that you then just focused on that blind spot or that weakness and said, I'm going to be good at it. And also effort and practice and breaking some breaking a habit discipline, down. Discipline. Yeah, it's a great mm-hmm. example of that in practice. What do you think were... Because you talked about at both Olympics that you won by marginal gains and that actually the two other teams technically should have won. Mm-hmm. What things do you think were the difference makers in that? I would probably say... We had a really strong bond as a team and having each other's back and you work in sync. And it's a bit like if you watch builders or joiners or, you know, people like that, of that trade in action, when you work together as a team so much, it's instinctive knowing what they're going to do. So it seems like a seamless operation. A bit like, you know, if you talk about flow state, it comes of years and years we working with people and I think certainly for the Commonwealth Games we spend a lot of time I mean we lived at the National Centre for years some people hated it but I loved it because I wasn't having to work I came from a full-time job in farming and training just to concentrate on training so where some of the lads are going up to training at seven o'clock in the morning half asleep in the pajamas I've been up an hour I mean when we talk about marginal gains and I think, why did I go to the Olympics in 2000 and none of the other, my teammates did? When I look back, I did lots of little things, what they didn't. Like, I, I had a training diary and I logged absolutely everything in it. The hours I trained, the number of skills I did. And then a few other people cottoned on and started doing it. I was up at six o'clock. I'd have a cup of coffee. I'd look at my training diary from the day before. I'd sort of have a bit of a plan what I was going to do. So those little things, I would probably stop a bit longer than most of the other people. I knew exactly what I needed to do and I would always have to leave that day a little bit better than the day before. So even if I was really tired and I knew I wasn't going to get quality of skills, I would do something to get quantity so I'd beat my record. So I was constantly in competition with myself. Me and my training diary, I found it the most motivational thing ever. But some other people wouldn't get it and they couldn't do it. But I would literally come down, write down what I'd done and I created my own sort of rating system and I'd focus. 
And it, it also let me sort of play back what I'd done. So I'm almost self-evaluating, even to the point of when I was at the come-off games and the Olympic Games and the competition, I would come down and I'd write down what I'd just done in my routine and the score, like it was that much. But it, whether it stopped me from getting distracted by other people, and I think that's what lots of sports people do when they're young. You know, you go to events and you stand around in awe of all these people and you're looking, oh, wow, 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 wow. Well, you're never going to be like them if you're just standing out, you know. Somebody said, work till your idols become your rivals. And that was it. So I, as I got older and a bit like within the Commonwealth Games, don't focus on what the other people are doing because you've absolutely no control over that, which then dips into control the controls or your circle of influence. They could be amazing. Well, me standing here just worrying about how good you're going to be is not going to help me deliver my best performance. Yeah. So, so we just head down and do what I know. And I think that's so interesting because what you've really described there is almost a micro-dosing of motivation. When you're achievement-focused the way that you are, what that driver is is the visibility of achieving goals, targets, whatever it is. And what a lot of people do when they're that is they wait for other people to recognise their achievement or they measure their achievement in too long of a stint. So, for example, they might say, well, what have I achieved this week or what have I achieved this month? And while that'll stimulate the motivation, ideally you want to stimulate it every day. And what you described with that training diary, because when I was first listening to you, you're not procedural and you're not detailed. And I was thinking, what's that about? But actually what you described there was about the achievement. I write down my score, I tick it off. So what you were doing was you were fueling that achievement motivation in you every day at moments during the day. And that motivation sounds like that was the difference maker in a lot of that stuff that you'd been told before. It did, and it's exactly the same now. So I was having the conversation with Matt, my friend yesterday, who's a multi-business owner, and we both really love DIY and stuff like that. So I'm building something outside at the gym, like a little counter. I will get the wood. I have it in my mind, and I'll start doing it. And then when I've put it up, I went, I don't really want that there, and I'll rip it down. And Matt would laugh at me and go, so basically you've spent two hours making a pile of firewood. <laughs> and I'll go, yeah, but I'm that determined I will not leave that day until I've got what I want. So I, things create. And then we were laughing yesterday because he came and I'm putting these lights up and I just get them out of the box and start putting them up. And I realised I put them up wrong. And he go, did you have a plan again? I went. I don't like plans. And he, he's saying, like, we laugh about this all the time. And certainly the future project that we're going to do together, I said, I'm going to drive you crazy. And he says, well, I wish I was a bit more like you because you're a bit more gung-ho. But now you mention it, it takes my motivation to do something. Now I've realised that that's my success feeling inside. Like, I hate doing paperwork because I can't see what I've done. I hate doing emails or things. I do it when I have to, but I'm happiest when I've got my boiler suit on, I've got my power tools out, <laughs> and I'm building something. Yeah, that definitely plays to, I mean, your high choices and high initiation, which means you love the variety, you get started. I mean, we laugh about the high choices because usually people who have that in them are the types of people who would like, maybe, I don't know, get a flat pack, 
of bed or something and you build it without looking at the instructions and you usually build it wrong because you're not following a process. You don't like to follow a process. I've done this many a time. But what that does mean is, is that you will, you'll do things fast. You've got a bias for action. You want to dive in, which is, is actually your strengths. But sometimes it's, I mean, it's fun to watch, I think. Just a top tip for the listeners. I mean, around that achievement, we do a lot of work with business owners and people who have a goal. I think what Laura mentioned is really, really interesting. They have a goal and they actually only measure their success by if they achieve that end goal. Sometimes that spans across months. And then if they don't achieve it, the world's ended for well, them. Well, Craig's could have been four years, couldn't it? Totally. Was, uh-huh. so long. And I think that's like a really interesting tip for the listeners to say, break it down. I mean, we often give this advice, but this is in motion, really. Break it down, make it smaller. If you can make it daily, even better. But really also taking time to celebrate the successes or the achievements along the way. One of the things I'm interested in asking and finding out more about is how did you make that decision when you did retire? How did you make the decision of the timing of it? And what was that transition like for you? Well, it was brilliant. Actually, I know lots of people, they really fear retirement. I fear retirement from working now. But for gymnastics, definitely not. I'd done it for 20 years. I think I'd had 13 operations by the time I'd come to an end. And after the Olympics, I said, right, the days have gone when I'm training on painkillers and just getting through, you know, every day was a battle. All athletes struggle with injuries, you know, it's constant. And and probably the damage that I did through taking vast amount of painkillers and and that's not to lay blame to anybody else but myself that was you know I was a grown-up I was making those decisions it was get there at all costs would I do the same again absolutely and then so I thought after the Olympics I'm gonna let my body heal so I think between just after Sydney within the first year about another five operations again I thought I'll just retire you know and wander off into the grand vista of life but then I carried on to prove a point and it was really tough I moved back to Newcastle I'm not originally from here obviously with the accent but my original gymnastic coach from Burnley was working in Newcastle and I wanted to prepare away from everybody else and I remember the coach saying to me and this is another great story about my intrinsic motivation earlier that year we had the European Championships and I wasn't planning on doing all six pieces of apparatus at the come-off games. I had a really bad elbow. It was like tennis elbow. They couldn't fix it. I had five operations on it. And it only hurt on the pommel horse. When I was doing the circles, it was like somebody sticking a needle in. So imagine trying to do a routine like that. I went, I'll not do the pommel horse. So the coach said to me, we need you to do three pieces of apparatus. You'll be fine. So we had the European Championships. And he said, we're going to pick some guys. You need to beat this gymnast on the floor to go to the Europeans. So I've been practising like mad on floor, put this new move in, it came off, I beat this other guy. When they did the selection and we stood in the line, they picked the other kid over me. Now, probably 20 years ago, I'd have probably kicked my bag and bust into tears and stormed out the gym. But I walked off into the next gym. The coach came in, who was a good friend of mine as well, and said... Well, you're only interested in going to the Commonwealth Games, aren't you? And I was absolutely furious. And I went, no. I train hard to go to every competition. And it made me realise that I'd been stitched up. And they could quite easily do that at the Commonwealth Games because it's subjective. 
And the rule for the Commonwealth Games were the first two people on all around were in the team and the rest was down to the selectors. That changed that day and I went, I'm back on the Pomelos. And even though I was in agony, I trained once a week and I'd sort of guessed because I was really good at monitoring my scores. Again, when people say you're not good at planning, I get that. But in gymnastics, I was, oh, maybe I burnt it out. Because I remember in the Olympics, I said to my coach, I can score 55.3. And he said, impossible, you'll never score a 55 against somebody else. But I said, well, I've added up all my best scores from every competition. And if I did that in the competition, I'd score 55.3. And in the Olympics, I scored 55.43. Wow. Right? So I realised I need some sort of plan of a score for the come-off games. And I'd worked out that. If I scored 52, it would probably be enough. And I averaged 52.2. And I was top qualifier. So it meant I got my place on the team. So again, those are life-changing moments. If I hadn't been unselected for that competition, I would have probably carried on, just done a couple of pieces, and might not have gone to the Commonwealth Games. And I guess it comes back to that control of controllables. I could control what I needed to do. Yes, my pommel horse wasn't that good at routine, but I got through and I got a score and it was enough to get on the team. And I think, again, what you described there around, you know, you mentioned about people saying you're not good at planning. The way we describe this whole lack of process, lack of detail, often when people have got a lack of process and lack of detail in their map, it doesn't mean you can't do detail or process. It means you're not doing detail and process because you like detail and process. You were doing process to achieve. You weren't doing process because you liked it. Your process was about, I know if I follow this method, if I record my scores, if I click in on it every day, I am going to achieve. That was the end goal. We're similar, neither of us are high process, high detail, but we execute procedurally to do something else. It's what's what's the aspiration what's the end? at the end. And I think that's yeah. what a lot of people struggle with. So they have big aspirations, but they ain't got the effort. Yeah. And that's the problem. And I often talk to Matt about this going, oh yeah, I could really do with getting better at this. But then I'll go, well, what's the outcome? So if I spend all this time learning this one thing, how valuable is that going to be to me? as a skill set. And like you say, in business, you can't do everything. So I would much rather pay somebody that's really good at finances, at like sitting at a computer, doing all that stuff, than me doing it myself. But again, if my life depended on it, of course I would do it. So I always look at what's the outcome versus the amount of effort I've got to put in. And that's the driver for all people. They want their success, but they often feel short because they're not willing to put the effort in. I'm interested in, you've talked about being a kid growing up in a sport that wasn't cool. And you talked a little bit at the beginning about, you know, watching the girls do gymnastics and thinking you weren't going to do it. And you've described, I suppose, all the way through this about this whole run your own race attitude. How did you get over that as a kid, as a young person? Because that not cool thing it's tricky when you're young. You know, what What were some of the things that you did to just get to where you were from that starting point? Well, I think probably one of my biggest regrets was my wasted opportunity in school. But again, 
you know, probably back then we didn't have attention deficit disorder and all that. Mm-hmm. But I, I often look at that, well, maybe it's an interest deficit disorder because I wasn't interested, you know, and growing up on a farm was full of adventure and I always wanted to be on the farm. Why do I want to learn about trigonometry or geography or French? And I think you learn a skill set in survival. And I guess this goes back to the chimp stuff. And you develop these skill sets for survival, but not everybody has it. So I sort of developed a sense of humour through school so I wouldn't get bullied for doing gymnastics. But on the back of that, I became the class clown. And I was so disruptive. I mean, this would never happen now. But I remember my French teacher saying to me once, Craig, why do you come to my lessons? You're so disruptive. And I was like, well, if I don't come to your lessons, you're going to put me on report. My parents are going to come in and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get earache, blah, blah, blah. And he said to you, I'll do your deal. I said, I like deals. You don't come to my lessons and I'll mark you in. <laughs> and the irony of all this was, at the end of school, I think I got a certificate for attendance in French for 100% and I never went to a lesson. <laughs> but I was a horrible kid. And I, I, I would admit that. Would I do it again? Yes, because I needed to do it to survive high school. If I hadn't, I'd have probably give up gymnastics. I would have probably been bullied. And I became a bit of a bully because I ended up joining the lads that was always in trouble, thinking that's my way to survive. But then when I look back and I'm thinking, well, I wasted that opportunity. And then just before I left school, I ended up on television doing this competition called the Weetabix Young Gymnast of the Year, and it was down in Wales. I was doing my GCSEs. I left school on a Friday, went home, we packed up the car, travelled down Saturday, was on Sunday, drove back, and it might have been on TV on Sunday. When I went back to school after being on TV and I walked in the gym, I got a standing ovation from the lads that used to think I was a weirdo for doing gymnastics. And at that point... And I, I was fourth in the competition. I didn't even win a medal. But that was a life-changing moment to go, wow, I nearly stopped doing something I loved so many times because of what other people have said and done. And I think that's given me the confidence in life as I've got older. Why would you do that? Well, because I feel confidence inside to go and do it. And it must be really tough for young people. And when I often go to schools and do talks and stuff like that, I tell that story because it's really important. It's about being an individual. You've done a lot of mentoring sort of over the years and you've just given us some examples probably of stories you've told younger people and groups of people that you work with. What do you think are some of the essential behaviours of like a great mentor? I think probably being able to listen but also being able to share experience rather than go, I read somewhere, you know, well, actually... If you look at successful people, and this goes back to the bounce stuff, one of the things they talk about is motivation by association. And I always think if I can tell a story which can reach as many people sat in the room as possible, whether they call it the hook or whatever, then they're more likely to believe that they can do it. You know, if I if I went into a school and said, yeah, I, I grew up and I had a nanny and I lived in a massive house and I went to a private school, you know, and I did this and I had a chauffeur and I'm telling a story in a school in the depths of Biker, I'm going to have no association with me, so they're not likely to... But if they go, oh, yeah, that, that was me. 
I did that, you know. I grew up in a farmhouse with no heating and I had hand-me-down clothes off other kids, which was really embarrassing, but that's what I had. And my aspiration as a kid was to be warm when I was older. I just wanted to live in a warm house and actually I wanted to have Christmas Day off and not go have to work on the farm. So actually every Christmas now when it comes around and I get up and I don't have to get up at six o'clock and go and milk the cows and then work like an idiot to come in to open my presents. And then at three o'clock when the Queen's speech was on back then, I had to go back out in the freezing cold and feed all the animals and milk the cows again. I don't do that every Christmas. I don't want Christmas presents. You know, and I get up in the morning and the house is nice and warm. I feel like I'm winning. But if you've never experienced what that was like... How can I say to my kids, you're really lucky because you've got a nice warm house and you're not having to go and do jobs and they go, whatever. And so it's really hard to put that experience into people who've never experienced it. It's that comparison, isn't it? I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and he was talking about people that he knew and that you've always got this next level of comparison. And he was talking about a guy who he sold his business for 30 million and all the people around him had never done something like that and he thought he was winning. But then because he sold his business for 30 million, he went and bought this 10 million pound house. And then all of a sudden he was surrounded by people on his street that had sold businesses for 100 million. So then all of a sudden he thought he wasn't winning. And it's this art of comparison that it's what your experiences are, but also the people around you. And that becomes your benchmark, positive or negative. You're definitely a product of your environment. And I think with that, it's about being inspired by people but not comparing yourself. It's looking at people who've done amazing things, like, you know, Craig, your story's so inspirational. Take inspiration from that. You don't then need to emulate someone. Take the bits, take the learning, and be inspired to go off and do your thing as an individual, but not to compare yourself against people because it's so destructive. It, it absolutely is, because wherever you are, like you've just explained, there'll always be somebody better off. What we tend not to do is take a moment to think about the people that are worse of and where you've got in your journey. I was coming out here on the Metro today thinking, well, you're going to have loads of people sat in this chair and multimillionaires have been so successful. I'm nowhere near being a multimillionaire, but I feel really successful in my own right. And the fact that success means I can walk my kids to school, which my dad never did to me. And I don't begrudge my dad that, but we rarely did anything together because he was always working on the farm. And that relationship isn't that great now because he's still obsessed with working, even though he's nearly 80. You know, his farm's now an equestrian centre and he's he's got this, well, I've got 90 horses on livery, but next year I'm going to go to 100. I'm like, Dad, you're 80. And he'll go... Yeah, and I'm doing this, and I'm selling bales of straw. My businessman in Miami go, yeah, but you bought them for this price, and you're delivering them, you're not making any money. He go, yeah, but I made a tenner. <laughs> and I go, yeah, but you probably haven't made a tenner because the van blows up every year, and you've got to put a new engine in it, and this, that, and the other. So they're the details of business that I think I've learnt about reading the data. You know, it's all right doing something for nothing if you enjoy doing it. There's lots of things I do at my centre now that I do for my pleasure. Probably doesn't make any money. But the feedback is 
from the customers that come in and go, wow, you're always doing something new here. I love coming to the centre because, in my mind, go, well, that probably contributes to people coming here rather than everywhere else. So sometimes you don't even see the money that what you've done is not instant, but it's part of what you do. And I'm sure in all businesses, these bits that don't make money, but they're part of the bigger picture, which brings the money in. I want to wrap up with a little question around, you know, you've talked all the way through around your motivation, but you also mentioned you had 20 operations, you had lots of injuries. And I want to wrap up with something, because I think this is particularly pertinent for athletes who experience setbacks, but could be applicable in any environment when business owners go through it. How did you get through those setbacks? Because there was lots of them, lots of operations, lots of injuries where you were out of the game, out of the high of competing. What do you think were some of the game changers in getting through that? And what do you still apply now? I think I'm quite a visual person. So what I would do is I would stick things up around the house Certainly when I was training up here in 95, before the 96 Olympics, there was me, my coach, a very cold gym, but I had a radio, full blast, and I would stick the photos of the Olympic rings everywhere. Like, over the toilet, in the cereal cupboard, in my training diary. Like, it was everywhere, and that was the reason why I did it. I did the same later on with a dream car I always wanted. I haven't got a Ferrari or anything like that, but for me, it was a dream car. And I just took a picture of this car in the office, you know, and certainly when you work from home or for yourself, I'd open the office door and it was there and I'd go, well, I ain't going to get that car if I walk on by. So I think it's really important that we stick those things up and around. And I think what I used to think that if I wasn't training, somebody else was, which was probably a negative because what COVID's taught us is you can have a long break from sport and you will get back into it. So I reckon if I'd have took breaks and let my body recover, I probably wouldn't have had all those operations. And I'd have probably been better off. But we knew very little about sport back then. We didn't have sports science. We didn't have strength and conditioning coaches. You know, the Russians did it, or so we got told. So we thought... If you're not training, you're losing. And that, that was as much in my mindset. My mindset is now, it's okay to take a day off. You need a day off to recover. And you probably not end up having all the operations and all that stuff around it. I think that would probably be my one advice to my younger self. Don't worry if you're not training. I feel guilty having a day off. I feel guilty having a day off work now. Matt feels the same. If we're not there, we, f we feel guilty. Or if you want to give yourself a pay rise, you feel guilty. It's weird, in the feeling inside. But I think the, just to take a step back and look at what you've done, but as you've probably looked on the chart, I always need a project. My wife laughs about it, you know. Action. Yeah, and it's that small gain, do something regular, that makes you feel good. You were talking this morning about going to the gym. I feel like the mornings when I've been up and been to the gym and then got home, got my kids ready, walked them to school, I'm winning. And anything else on top of that is another win. And if you like winning at life, do those things. 
I don't go to the gym. I don't lift massive weights. You know, you get these people that come in January. We're laughing because everybody's there in January. Within a couple of weeks, they're gone. And you see people lifting these big weights, you know, and you're thinking, what, what are you doing? Because that's trying to appeal to other people. Run your own race. Little and often is the key to success, I think. I think that's a beautiful message to finish on. But thank you so much. We have loved this and really excited to continue to follow your journey and all the projects that you're going to continue to do, I'm sure. Well, I've loved it so much. Thank you, guys. One of the things I get a lot of pleasure from, especially with my speaking side of my work, is maybe inspiring other people to not go as hard on themselves. You know, we don't know how long our journey is. And it's just taking those moments just to go, I've done all right. Don't be too critical because there'll be lots of other people want to criticise you. We've got to take the small wins. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Let's wrap up from Craig's episode. So the first big takeaway was Craig talking about being in competition with yourself and not getting caught up in what is going on around you. It can be so easy to do that, whether that's in sport or business, but actually focusing on what's internally motivating to you will always be far more effective in helping you achieve your goals than looking externally. Craig talked about in order to qualify, having to be good in all six areas. So he had to address a weakness that he had on one particular exercise. And what he did with that was he got the brutal feedback that he wasn't good at it and he needed to succeed and get better. But he knew that the only way to do that was to get marginal gains over a long period of time. So he went back and he did that exercise every day, every week, over a four-year period. And that was what actually made the difference in the Olympic success that he then went on to get. He also talked as part of that about keeping that training diary and often what happens when we set goals is that they're long term and people lose motivation along the way but actually what Craig talked about was his high achievement and he stimulated that achievement on a daily basis ticking off goals as he went along versus just looking at the longer term. Thank you for listening to Misbehave. Follow us so you don't miss out on other episodes.